at the heart of this show, it's money. We, we talk a lot about money because it's a personal finance show. And so I guess my question would be for someone who's listening and they're like, I hear you, Jen, but money is tight and I want to do these things, but I'm not sure how to approach it. If you could share some tips that can help women listening to this episode better design a life that allows them to thrive. I would love that. And then I'm going to get nosy and ask a question around how did you earn your way out of the old job? Welcome to Michelle is Money Hungry. I'm your host, Michelle Jackson, and I focus on holding financial conversations that lean into social equity, policy, and access with a splash of pop culture. My goal is to lead these conversations with empathy and help both my listeners and myself learn more about money along the way. For the next week, my guests and I will focus on when American women decide that they want more in their lives. Interestingly, many of the conversations centered around going into entrepreneurship. With that in mind, though, I do want to say that my guests and I aren't necessarily encouraging you to go into business. Instead, this conversation in my mind is a reflection of the policies that aren't in place here in the United States. Policies such as paid parental leave, generous paid sick leave, or just having a degree of flexibility and autonomy over your days so that you can run an errand, schedule a doctor's appointment, or take your kid to ballet. Or sometimes you just have to help your parents out when things come up. I often wonder how different American life would be for women if we had some of these policies in place. Would the choices we make be different? When I moved into digital entrepreneurship, I found myself collaborating with brands, doing 1099 work and needing to send out invoices and just having to set up systems to keep my business organized. It has been an ongoing process to find the right tools and systems for me. I'm so excited about a new tool that I now use that allows me to invoice clients, set up tasks, and even track my time as I work on specific tasks. I also use it as a CRM or client relationship management system. What's the tool's name? Harlow. I am obsessed with Harlow and I'm so excited that Harlow has partnered with me to bring the conversation around women wanting more personally, financially, and professionally to life. Harlow is a woman-owned business designed by former freelancers who understand the challenges of keeping creative businesses organized. I love how responsive the team is to my questions and occasionally I'll send in an email, which is a big deal as they continue to improve and refine this new tool. If you're looking for a comprehensive system to organize your invoicing, manage your clients, and keep yourself organized while seeing your cash flow, I encourage you to give Harlow a try. I am also a proud affiliate as well, so we're partnering, but I'm also an affiliate. Go to michelleismoneyhungry.com backslash Harlow to check it out. My name is Jen Ruiz. I'm the solo female traveler behind Jen on a Jet Plane. I am a lawyer turned full-time travel writer, content creator, author, and digital entrepreneur. How in the hell did you go from law 
to a full-time content creator? Like what was the trajectory and what happened to have you change your, your profession in such a profound way? Sure. It was a slow trajectory, Michelle. I think a lot of people assume that this is the type of career where you immediately skyrocket to success. And for me, it was a lot of trial and error. I actually launched my first blog just because I wanted to have a creative outlet, something to do writing other than just like the personal insurance forms that I was doing as a law clerk. Uh, and I ended up finding that I enjoyed writing. I started writing for different publications like Elite Daily. I was contributing to them on an unpaid basis just to have something to do, right? Just because I was, it would actually, it would make my day better if I was like, how quickly can I finish these super boring forms so that I can spend (laughs) the rest of the time that I'm here, like trying to knock out an article for Elite Daily about lifestyle things. Like, I don't know, the uh, Kanye and Taylor Swift few or like 10 ways to tell he's into you, right? I wasn't necessarily writing about travel because I wasn't traveling, uh, but I just started writing to do something creative, to do something fun and to challenge myself in a day. And then that's when I launched my first blog, which was not what it is today. I actually rebranded twice. So I went through, uh, my first blog was called 20s Chic. It was all about how to be in your 20s and overwork, but still trying to be fabulous. Uh, (laughs) And then- uh, uh, it, obviously no longer in my twenties. So that was not a sustainable blog. And then, uh, when I first started traveling on my birthdays or when I changed to doing something experiential for my birthday versus trying to host this elaborate VIP party where everybody comes out and, and making my birthday about the external validation. Um, I instead on my 26th birthday, I actually went and flew a plane on my birthday. And I remember oh. after that, I thought, you know, even if no one shows up to my party tonight, this birthday birthday was still a success. This birthday is still something I will remember because I flew a plane today. That's my first time doing that. I'll never forget that. And then that's when I changed from 20s chic to what's Jen up to, which I knew I wanted to kind of talk more about experiences. And it wasn't until mid 2016. Uh, so a couple of years into this that I actually landed on Jen on a jet plane. I am actually curious about as you were embracing these interests and kind of like these dreams as well. What did the people around you think? And what did you notice about how others were working towards their dreams as well? How were you able to pursue your dream life or your unique experiences in a way that was different from other people? Or was there a mindset that was different? This is a very vague and broad question, but kind of go with it. Sure. Sure. So I think at first, like when I had articles that were going viral fairly daily, sometimes, you know, I I could write, I figured that out pretty quickly. That was what I enjoyed about law. It's what I liked the whole time. I just was discovering that for myself, that really it was the storytelling, the public speaking, these same core skill sets that I use today. And that was what drew me into uh, trial law specifically, you know, being in the courtroom. But I remember, you know, when I had an article that got 10 million views on Elite Daily, and then everybody gave me a lot of grief, like, oh, you weren't paid for that. They made a lot of money off of you and you didn't get anything off of that. But not even the money part. Like I'm saying like when you were doing some, I guess what I'm trying to say is you were doing things like flying a plane, right? Mm -hmm. Were you seeing other women dreaming big about those things? Not the work component, but the dream part. No, I was in South Florida. And so 
a lot of the things in South Florida were status symbols, right? That's why I felt that pressure to have that perfect birthday party with the VIP entrance and the sparklers and the cake and like everybody there, like a hundred people celebrating you. Like that was the measure of success to a lot of people. A lot of things felt superficial. It felt like I needed to have this particular car or this particular purse or just all these things that I found myself chasing. And then even as I got, you know, pretty close to them, because I never quite nailed it. It never felt authentic to me. But even as I like worked so hard to get there, I just remember thinking like, man, I worked so hard to get here. And this kind of sucks. Like, I like I remember my 24th birthday, I got pretty close. Like I had a list, I had a fancy Miami South Beach Club. And I was like, okay, I think this is it. Like, this is my moment to like, feel like I've made it and I'm fulfilled. And I'm having this amazing birthday. And I was like, actually, I'm not really enjoying this at all. And my main friends that I wanted to be here, and I wanted to celebrate with, like, they're not enjoying it at all. They're just here, like, to placate me. And so I realized that I wanted to do things more for me versus for how it looked to other people. And that's when I started to do these experiences. And when I started to travel, that's when I changed. Once I had that experience with flying the plane from then on out every year, I decided that I was going to be traveling for my birthday. um, Because no matter what, I would never regret traveling for my birthday, I would never regret going somewhere, I would always remember that birthday that I was in Bali watching the traditional Apsara dancers, or the birthday that I spent in Barcelona, you know, in Sagrada Familia. Um, So it was a way for me to mark my life in a way that actually felt meaningful to me, not just what everybody expected of me. You know, living in the United States, I think women are often very, uh, we're often conflicted about pursuing the things that, that really give us joy or just are a little outside of what we might feel is the social norm. As you were reframing what you wanted, what what did you wish your your friends understood about why this was so attractive to you? I think a lot of people thought I was crazy for traveling alone. They maybe thought I was lonely or I couldn't find somebody to go with me or like I was the sad person. And I wish that they'd understood that it was the opposite of sad. It was so incredible, so amazing. If anything, I got to a point like my very first uh, travel writing assignment was to go to Universal Studios to write about Universal Studios versus Disney. I got my ticket comp to Universal Studios. And that was my first time ever being in a theme park by myself. I don't think very many people go to theme park by themselves because it's just innately a social thing. You go with family, you have a big group of friends. And I remember like, okay, I'm here for work. This may be awkward. Let's see how this goes. And then midway through the day, as I'm like drinking my Harry Potter butterbeer, like (laughs) (laughs) going so badly. (laughs) (laughs) They're so good. They have them like ice cream. They have it at every Don't tell me, don't tell me. And so I'm sitting here, you know, like eating and drinking what I want, going into the lines, getting out quickly because I can go in the solar riders line. I had the fast pass. Like I was just walking like through the crowds, weaving through in and out of people. I didn't feel like stuck. And I was like, man, 
this is actually kind of awesome. Like, why don't more people go to theme parks? So I'm having the best day. Like, what is there to be sad about? I'm in a theme park. I have rides to go on. I have food to eat. I have the day to just sit here. And this is my quote unquote work. Like, this is freaking amazing. And I think maybe a lot of people that would have seen me just random passerbys would have been like, oh, is that girl lost? Like, where is her family? Where are her friends? Is she okay? And I was so much more than okay. Uh, I just really found that I enjoyed being in my own company. I enjoyed doing what I wanted to do when I wanted to eat, like to do it, stuffing my face with whatever I wanted, you know, no judgment, no worries about like who can or can't afford this. Like, what do I have to share with people? Do I have to go on a ride? I don't want to go on. Like it was pure um, selfishness, I guess, but in the best way. And that the only person you're looking to please is yourself. I think that I, I, well, I love that you use the word selfishness because in the conversations that I've had with the other ladies who, uh, so kindly contributed to this, this season, to this series of content around women wanting more, I think there is a tension between like, are we selfish? I remember my grandma has on more than one occasion said that I I'm selfish (laughs) and I'm like, First of all, I'm only child. I don't know that it's selfish or that this is just like how it goes when you're only child. And I think that there are some generational tensions around designing your a best, like designing a life that allows you to thrive, which is really what we're, you know, at the, the heart of what we're talking about. And I, I'm curious to know how did you embracing this totally different way of making money. And, and I don't want to talk about the money part so much, but like you, you, you're changing your career and how did you decide, you know what, maybe I can thrive in a different way. And this is the trajectory that, that I'd like to go on. What was that internal conversation like, and what did your friends and family say? Well, it was interesting. It was not something that I had been taught. And I think for me, because I had spent my whole life you know, I was president of my elementary school. I worried a lot about getting a full scholarship to college and getting into the good law school. And so I spent so much of my time trying to meet all of these external markers of success, trying to become like this perfect person with the career and like the like love life and all these other things. And I realized that I had spent pretty much my twenties, my entire twenties, uh, living for other people and really, you know, especially in the legal field, because so much of my energy was put into fixing people's major life problems. So many people counted on me and that's, what's rewarded. Like you're rewarded for fixing other people's problems. You're rewarded for giving more of yourself than what you have. You're rewarded for like not sleeping. Right. And so those are all thought to be virtues and like, good for you. Like you've worked yourself to death. Congratulations. And for me, I I did feel that way where I felt like I'd given up almost my youth, right? I'd gone straight. I was in college by the time I was 17. I was in law school by the time I was 21. I was a bard attorney by the time I was 24. And then I got to 29 and I'd been practicing for five years. I'd handled over, you know, 700 cases. And I felt like my twenties were spent in achieving. My twenties were spent in trying to be important and trying to do important work and trying to help people. And not at all in just like, 
figuring out who I was and having good times for me. And that's when I decided to take that 12 trips in 12 months challenge the year before my 30th birthday, because I wanted to do something that was just for me because my twenties were running out. And I always have a very clear grasp on the time uh, grasp on the time that the fact that like time is, is fleeting time is going, it is not coming back. So even though I know I'm still young, I'm not in my 20s anymore. And I felt like I owed it to my 20s to have some kind of big hurrah to celebrate me, like for me, by me, with just me as the main character. All right. I love I love all, all of that. Me, 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 me. <laughs> so I have a question though. How did you have the time to do that? Did you have vacation? To- How were you doing this? I previously did not have any vacation times. I actually remember at one firm I was at, they held a pizza party for us on Christmas day. And I remember, wait, wait, wait on the Christmas day, on the Christmas day. It was like, we were working in the office. And then our treat was that at one o'clock we got to leave early to go to their pizza party. Like not even right. (laughs) I know. I know. And I remember, no, (laughs) that is the appropriate response. But yet in their minds, they thought they were being generous. They thought like, oh, this is great. We're going to give everybody a half day and buy them pizza. And I remember being like, you guys are freaking evil. Like, I just want to be home. Like, I don't want to be celebrating my holiday with you. I hate it here. Um, And so... (laughs) (laughs) And I just, I remember that feeling of being like, I can't believe they really are sitting here thinking that they're being generous with us right now. I could not like garner a smile on my face the whole time. I just had this frown where I looked like such a Debbie Downer on Christmas, but I was so angry that this is where I'm being forced to sit on a day where I really should have like my time off. And I think that that was part of what made me realize that I did want to have a job that prioritized giving me time and space. And so after that, I worked um, as a, at another private law firm. It was still difficult to get time off. I was in, you know, Sagrada Familia in Barcelona for my birthday. And when I got back, there was this resentment that I'd taken time off. There was this kind of underlying hostility, this kind of passive aggressiveness. And mind you, my birthday's on January 3rd. So when I was Ooh. gone- like courts weren't even open, right? It's like the just, holiday season. Exactly. And, and they just still expected me to be there. It was still kind of crazy for me to have taken that time off. And so one big switch for me was that I switched from working in a private law firm to working in public service. And then suddenly I still didn't have crazy time off 10 days uh, PTO, but I had holidays, public holidays, like if the courts are closed, we were closed. And so MLK day, you know, 4th of July, Thanksgiving, like these were days I did not have to work. And Black Friday, even as a gratuitous day, because it's between Thanksgiving and the weekend. So why make somebody come in? Like it just made sense. And so once I got to this job, I mean, again, it was 10 days in the holidays, but I may as well have had like all the time in the world because compared to the no time at all that I had before, and the resentment, uh, and that first hit me, you know, very early on when I started there, cause it was also normal hours. So some places at these other law firms, like, again, you get the cookie for having been there at 1am making copies, doing the things. And when I got to this law firm, this, this new nonprofit law firm, I actually 
realized there was a day, like maybe my second or third day there, and I couldn't find my car keys. And I was trying to leave like at five and I looked around and I realized like there was nobody there to ask to help me to find my keys because everybody had already left by like 505. <laughs> so, so like I was the only person left in the building I remember being like well this is actually kind of nice like I appreciate this about them I would really love some help finding my keys I think I may be stranded here but awesome that everybody takes this seriously that everybody's going home and that people aren't priding themselves on working these abnormal hours like they actually valued having a work-life balance so I was going to ask this later, but I think this is a good time to ask it as a Latina woman pursuing your best life. What do you want other Latinas to think about if they're considering um, reframing and redesigning their lives so, so that it's, it serves them better? First, I would advise you to stop thinking about what everybody else wants you to do and actually ask yourself what you want to do. Because maybe you want to be a painter, maybe you want to be a writer, maybe you want to be a dancer, but your whole life, somebody's told you that's not a real job, that's not a real thing, you can't actually make money from that. And it comes from a place of love. It comes from a place of wanting to protect you from disappointment, from failure, from bankruptcy. It comes from families that are wanting to have stability for you, right? It comes from a good place, but it really also is a, is a little bit reflective of trauma and limiting beliefs. And so I would suggest that you not necessarily listen to what other people's limitations are to what their idea of success is, unless they are like ridiculously happy, which honestly, most of our parents are not like most of our parents are not sitting there being like, I am living the dream. Um, most of our parents are working really hard and telling you that you have to work really hard too to just have some semblance of stability and success and prosperity. And that is not the case. Actually, when you do what it is that you feel called to do, when you do what it is that you have a passion for, the money will come later, but you're going to find that you enjoy doing it. You want to do it for longer. It's more sustainable and you're better at it than something that you're sitting there forcing yourself to do just because you think that that's the path to success. Could you share what the transition was like? Because even though I kind of stopped you from talking about how you grew your business. I'm going to share a link to another episode where we just talk about the business part of this, but I do think it's important to talk about how you transitioned out and how you just prepared financially to go from doing this very traditional type of work to what you do now. I, I, I feel like I want people to dream, but I want them to understand like the trajectory. And I love that you shared that it wasn't overnight, that, 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 that you're in your third iteration of the work that you do now. Yes, it, it really. And it's been, you know, eight years, four years that I've been doing this full time. And it still feels like it's been a slow burn. And I know at one point I'm going to have wild success and somebody's going to be like, wow, Jen was an overnight success. And I am <laughs> can't wait until that moment to be like, you have no idea how many. I can't wait. <laughs> Because it really isn't. It's really more about longevity, making like baby steps and, and just keeping moving forward. Even if you're making mistakes along the way, you're stumbling forward, uh, which action is always better than inaction. And so one of the big things for me was 
one of the trips that I took during that 12 trips in 12 months challenge was to a travel blogging conference, my very first one. And I remember feeling some type of way about it because it was in Huntsville, Alabama. And this was my exciting year of adventure. And I definitely did not have Huntsville, Alabama on my list of like super exciting destinations. And so I was like, and it ended up costing more than some of my European trips, right? It was not easy to get to this destination necessarily. So I felt like "Mm, this is more money than I would spend on like a really fun trip. And I don't know, but it was so important for me to do that because I immediately noticed the difference when I would get sent to law to law conferences. I always like I just always thought the whole point of a work conference was to try to skip as much as possible to try to go and like go to the pool and actually hang out in the city that you're in, like not actually be present in the sessions, because to me, those legal sessions were a special type of torture. Like I remember waking up as late as I could, like dragging myself into the room, sitting in the very back, like popping on the internet and doing other things while people talked. And like, I pretended to listen, never actually caring at all about anything that was being shared at a conference ever. And then once I got to this travel conference, it was night and day. Like I actually found the content really interesting. I wanted to sit in the front. I wanted to take notes. I wanted to talk to the speakers afterwards. I was very engaged. And I remember thinking to myself, like, is this what it's supposed to feel like? Like, is this what it means to be doing what I'm meant to be doing versus just what is expected of me? Because I hated all of the legal events, every single one of them. We used to have like bear stairs meetings where we would go and have dinner. And I remember once like some of the exercises were like, we'd have to make a game or a skit about something law related. And I just remember sitting there rolling my eyes being like, everyone here is so corny. I hate it here. <laughs> I just, like I hate it here so much. And I just have to smile and be nice to the judges and try to make a good impression for my job. And I have to be grateful that I'm like sent here and have this networking opportunity. And I would just, I'd go for the food. I'd be like, well, at least we got catered food. Like at least I'm going to eat some chicken and not have to cook when I get home tonight. <laughs> Like that was literally the only pro of these events. And then when I went to these travel blogging conferences, like whether or not they have this huge catered meal, like I was sometimes eating like a random sandwich out of a lunchbox with like, you know, the chips. And I'd be like, this is so much fun. I'm having a great time. I'm loving all the people I'm meeting. Like it was just completely different. And that was my first insight into the fact that I was in the wrong place and I was doing the wrong career. And I was sitting here trying to fit a square peg into a round hole. I'm laughing because it just, it's so funny to me how there's a moment when it's clear that you're just, it's, it's, you're, you're not supposed to be where you're, where you're at. And it's funny because I, I had a slightly different experience with my career. I worked with international students. I had been an international student and studied abroad. I I loved everything about it. And then there was a moment where I was like, I hate this. And I, I also had a situation at my job Uh, And it took a while to hit that point, by the way. Um, But I I had a situation where I had a colleague, and I say this word very loosely, who for five years, for five years would ignore me. She would pretend like she didn't hear me speaking. If we were in a meeting, she would roll Mm. her eyes. She would sigh. She would just roadblock everything. She was terrible. Now she, she was the worst with me. And I think it was because I was black. Usually I don't say that, but I think in this case that made it worse. She did this with a lot of people, but she was the worst with me. Um, she did get fired eventually, <laughs> but anyway, you know, cause karma, karma. Uh, mm-hmm. 
but <laughs> it was funny because I, I had poured so much into this career. I loved it so much, but there, there were moments where I was like, I, I'm pouring so much into this. What about me? Right. Mm-hmm. What about me? Like, I, I felt like I was last on my list. And so one of my favorite things about your story is you're like, I'm first. Like you, you, you're like, I need to be first on my list. How does that look? And I love that you shared that there were little things that you did that were completely attainable by anyone listening to this episode. You know, you changed your job. You didn't get tons of time because Americans don't have federal leave. We do not have minimum federal leave. So if you're overseas and you're like, why do the Americans don't ever travel? Because we don't have minimum federal leave. So Jen being able to like hack that and and have these long weekends was a big deal, you know? Mm -hmm. And so for you listening and you're like, you know, I have these dreams. I want to do these different things. Maybe it's the long weekend that allows you to do it. One of the craziest things was in my old job, I actually had quite a bit of time accumulated by the time it was by, by the time it was, by the time that I quit, I had a lot of like vacation and PTO. It was crazy. And so I would take three week, uh, study abroad trips (laughs) and I'm going to be candid. Like I've done a three week study abroad. I've done a six month one. The three week ones were just as impactful and, and transformative as the longer ones. Absolutely. And a 24 hour trip, you know, a day trip can be just as impactful One of the trips that I took during that year was to Epcot during the food and wine festival. I got invited to be a VIP guest at a taping of the chew and this was broadcast and I called out to go and do this. So I remember thinking like, I hope my boss isn't watching this and doesn't see me like on stage next to Carla Hall, like eating the chocolate crust. Oh my God. I totally watched that. I totally watched those episodes. (laughs) And it was totally worth it. I got into the park for free. They gave me a $50 gift card afterwards. And that was a one day thing. It's in Florida where I already live. I've been to Disney many times, but it still felt like such a cool adventure. And I think one thing I realized as I traveled more is that anywhere you live, people consider to be a tourist destination. Maybe it doesn't seem like it to you, but people will come from everywhere, you know, to visit where you are. It doesn't matter where you are. I remember one of my coworkers really went to Ames, Iowa for her 60th birthday because she did the New York Times crossword puzzle a lot and that place came up a lot. And so she took it as a sign and she had like the best time in middle of nowhere, Ames, Iowa. And so (laughs) like, even if you think where you are is not a major tourist destination, which obviously Disney is, um, you can find something to do. If you're going looking for the stories, the experiences, there are small businesses everywhere. There's kind of, there's nature everywhere. Like there's so many cool things to do, but we disregard it because it's close by because we think it's not cool enough, right? It's not the Eiffel tower. So it's not worth my time. And Mm -hmm. I think if you go with curiosity, you will discover so many places that don't necessarily have to be far, even just taking a day trip somewhere. Like my parents live in upstate New York and people think New York is just New York City. There is so much to see in New York State outside of New York City. The wine region. Mm -hmm. Wine and cheese. I went once and I remember I paid like five bucks and I got to taste 14 different types of cheeses. That was a really good day for me. (laughs) I might be, I might be sad later, but you know what? (laughs) Yeah, it was just uh, like a 
a family farm. And so I got to learn about the process. Like I just love learning. And I think if you go somewhere with curiosity and being open to like, I'm going to learn something new today. Somebody's going to show me something really unique and wonderful. You know, the wine trails, there's that there's lavender fields in upstate New York. There's a big comedy center that in like the home of Lucille Ball and all these other cool places that you can see that I think, again, everybody disregards because it's not the Empire State Building. It's not all these big glamorous things, but that's not what travel is about. Travel is about taking yourself out of your daily bubble, taking yourself out of your routine and doing something different that shakes it up. And the reason that's so powerful is because when you're going through life on autopilot, when you're ruminating about your problems, when you're just sitting here worried about your bubble, you're not living in the moment. And I know we say that a lot, but it's so much harder to actually do to be in the moment. And when you travel, especially when you travel solo, you have no choice, right? You are really, you're taking in the new smells, you're taking in the new sights, you're listening to everything. You are in the moment just by virtue of being somewhere new and unfamiliar. And that is so powerful in terms of reinvigorating you and making you feel alive again, which is why so many people I think feel depressed and anxious because you're just going through the same thing every single day versus taking yourself out of that and seeing that there is more to life beyond that bubble that you've created. So I have two last questions and and at the heart of this show, it's money. We, we talk a lot about money because it's a personal finance show. And so I guess my question would be for someone who's listening and they're like, I hear you, Jen, but money is tight and I want to do these things, but I'm not sure how to approach it. If you could share some tips that can help women listening to this episode better design a life that allows them to thrive. I would love that. And then I'm going to get nosy and ask a question around how did you earn your way out of the old job? So those are the last two questions. Sure. Happy to answer. So when I switched to that kind of experiential focus after I flew the plane, I didn't fly that plane for full price. I flew that plane by getting on Groupon and finding like, what's a cool experience I could do. So I think I maybe paid like a hundred dollars for that experience. And it would have normally cost a couple hundred dollars. And there was also a website in uh, Fort Lauderdale and it was like Fort Lauderdale on the cheap. And so every time I would go and I'd log into that website to see what are some events that are going on? What are some free like outdoor movie nights or free museum entries or um, admission to places after a certain time where it's reduced price? So it doesn't, again, have to be grandiose. You can start small. And for me, something like that, like I want to go see this museum. I know it's free after 5 p.m. So let me go there. Or I know it's free on this particular weekend or there's free national park admission day, you know, a couple times a year. So take advantage of what is available. And maybe you just don't see it or you don't know it because you haven't been exposed to it. You haven't been looking for it. But there are definitely a lot of free activities out there that you can participate in and start small. And then when you're ready to go big, I think it's really important. And the biggest thing that people spend money on when they're traveling, especially internationally, is flights. And so I thought my first book was actually going to be the book that I am writing now. And that's going to be published next, next fall about the 12 trips and 12 months challenge. But actually my first book ended up being the affordable flight guide because people kept asking me, how are you getting to all of these places? Like they just thought it was crazy. And for me, 
I went to the library, another free resource, completely free. I took out all of the books that I could about travel, about travel hacking, about budget travel tips. And I started reading. I started listening to podcasts, another free resource, and just learning as much as I possibly could. And then from there, I developed three main strategies to get cheap flights. One of them is to sign up for flight alert programs. My favorite is Scott's Cheap Flights, but there's, you know, a dozen others at least. And what I like about Scott's Cheap Flights is that it's reliable. I get about a half dozen deals every day, uh, like $200 flight to the Bahamas, you know, $300 round trip flight to Europe kind of thing. And so, and he can, he has a free trial where people can stay on indefinitely. Cause I know a lot of people have distrust of these programs because they think, Oh, I enter my credit card and then I can't cancel it after the free trial and it's a scam. So Scott's cheap flights is not like that. And that's why I like them and recommend them. I've been using them for over five years. Um, that's not one way. Another way is through budget airlines. So I flew to Iceland on Wow Air for $99. And while they don't have Wow Air anymore, there are other airlines that have come up that have similar pricing structures like North Atlantic Airways, Play Air, French B. You know, there's so many budget airlines that you can check and you can get to Europe that way. I almost looked at budget airlines like a layaway structure, like, okay, I can pay for the base fare now and I can pay for my luggage a few months later and my seat selection after that. So it was almost like layaway of a flight. And if you were really savvy, you can just pay the bare minimum, you know, bring your own snacks, your own entertainment, your own headphones on board and be set and have that really cheap rate to get there. I do not have any loyalty to any airline whatsoever. I go where the best prices are. Uh, I'm not like, oh, I only fly X airline. Like, no, I really don't care. I'm going to fly the airline that gets me there and gets me the cheapest. And then I have more money to spend at my destination when I'm you there. You are my people. <laughs> Yeah, like I am not too bougie to fly a spirit or frontier like I will be on that spirit flight and I have had no issues like I know what I'm getting when I go there I come prepared I bring all my own things but I'm not going to be like oh no I'll never fly spirit if spirit has a $20 flight here I come spirit. Let's go. Where are we going? You know, um, that's how I got round trip to uh, San Francisco for like $20 round trip. So it can really be worthwhile if you're staying open to that. And then lastly, if you know that you're somebody that's inflexible, you have set dates, you have a set location, you have to travel like in the middle of July peak season. Uh, that's where points and miles come in. And I, as a Hispanic woman was very nervous about credit cards. My mom had told me my whole life, credit cards are for irresponsible people. They're for people who want to spend more than they have. It's bad to have credit card debt. Don't have this. And so my first foray into credit cards was I had a Victoria's Secret card in college. I ended up moving around so much that I didn't get the bills and I was sent to collections for like a hundred dollar bra, uh, like just all bad decisions. And I, after that, I was so traumatized that it would be years before I ever took out another card. I think I took out like a secured credit card right after I graduated law school just to start to build up my credit. And then I took that leap in the, the beginning of the 12 trips and 12 months challenge because I was reading about it because I was like, I think I can figure this out. Like, I don't think this is beyond my comprehension. 
And I took out a JetBlue card. It had a thousand dollar minimum spend in three months, which I thought was reasonable. If you're redirecting existing expenses onto the card, I got JetBlue points at the end of spending that. And I was able to redeem that for a flight. So it was very straightforward. It's an airline card that gets you this many airline points for an amount of money I knew I was going to reach. And then I can go right ahead and redeem those points for a free flight. And that was a very encouraging, easy win where I didn't have to think about point values, transferring miles, you know, partner airlines, none of that. Had JetBlue points for a JetBlue flight. And now I'm off to this JetBlue destination. And it showed me that I could do it. And then since then, I've, I've had obviously like a dozen credit cards and they're amazing and they've increased my credit score. I used to have my credit score in like the low 600s. I think I was even down in the high 500s at one point. And now I have excellent credit, like amazing credit approved for all credit cards. And it's because I started playing the game instead of being afraid of it. And then the last question is, how did you financially, like, how did you manage that transition from, like, how did you earn your way out of your old job and into your new career? I think that would be interesting. Sure. So there were two things I did. First, in February of the 12 trips in 12 months challenge, I realized that I was going to need more money to be able to fund some of these trips on my public service salary. And so I got a job teaching English online. And I had previously tried to like get a side gig tutoring online. I don't know what worked this time around. I think I just really, I, I really didn't have any experience with teaching or children in general. Um, but I emphasized that I was an attorney, that I had this legal degree. And since I was teaching to a company based in China, I, I knew that China valued degrees and I knew they valued that traditional education. I had taken three years of Chinese in high school. I can't speak a lick of science, but I mean, of Chinese, but I know enough about the culture after um, my Chinese teacher just for years would tell us about that. So I emphasized that. I emphasized that kind of that training and education and I got my foot in the door. And then I kind of started going a little bit nuts. So this was a whole different timeline because I was teaching students in China. So they would be awake at the time when I would normally be like going to sleep. And so when I started that first month, just because I was trying to get clients in, I would be teaching, you know, every single weekend, like all through the night. So I would start at like, I don't know, 10 p.m. midnight, and I'd go all the way to like 6 a.m. And I'd just be like, whatever, it's fine. I'll just sleep during the day on Saturday. No big deal. Um, and that was hard, but I made even at like half price uh, classes because I was still building up my uh classroom list. So I wasn't necessarily making the full price. I was, I made like $1,800 that month and it felt like I was rolling in the dough. It felt like I had so much money because I'd never seen that kind of extra money. I remember my voice shaking when I went into the one uh, private law firm before I went and found another job, like to ask for a raise. Like I remember my voice shaking and being so embarrassed at myself because I couldn't even control it. Like it sounded like I was so scared. And all of that was to get what a $5,000 raise that after all of that came out to like maybe an extra hundred bucks a paycheck, maybe. Um, and so this, like this extra 1800 a month was a big deal and it wasn't necessarily sustainable because I was sleepy. So I narrowed it down at some points and I'd be like, okay, I can teach from like 
3 a.m. to like 6 or 7 a.m. And then every morning before work, I would teach from like 5.30 or 6 a.m. to like 8.30. Thankfully, I didn't have a long commute. I could just go straight into work at the public service firm. So I would teach as much as I could, just throw on a suit and then go into work from there. And then that averaged out, I would say, to about like 1,200 to 1,500 a month that I was making extra every month. And that's what I used to fund my travels. It was about $20 an hour. And I waitressed all throughout college and in high school too. Like I started waitressing like at IHOP before, you know, I wasn't even 18. So I couldn't be at places where they served alcohol. So I remember making my tips like $2 at a time uh, and cleaning dirty diapers off tables because people are savages. Um, and then, so I always thought to myself, okay, well, I'm making <laughs> people savages. Uh, so I thought to myself, I'm making 20 bucks an hour teaching online. I can always waitress if I need to, because I knew what I liked about waitressing was it was quick cash. Like you go in that day without money, but you leave with cash. And so I just thought I have this as a backup. And then that was one thing, just kind of seeing that I, I could make money online. I had this steady way of making money online and maybe it wasn't desirable and maybe I couldn't necessarily live in the US and do that, but I could live somewhere. If I wanted to quit my job, I could be you know, in Asia doing this, maybe during more reasonable hours. And also then in at the end of that challenge, at the end by December, I knew I was going to be looking to transition. So by March of 2018 is when I self-published my first book. And that's when I saw proof of concept in that I can make a product, I can do something, I can put it online for the world to buy and they will buy it. So it became a bestseller in eight categories. It won an award and that you know, it wasn't necessarily raking in the big bucks, but I knew I could scale it. If one book is making me this, then I can write more books to double that, you know? And that was, those were the two proof of concepts that I needed. And I was not rolling in the dough. I did not have paid sponsored brand partnerships. I was not monetizing my website at the time, but I quit thinking that if I don't quit now, I'm going to get stuck. And I remember going around to other coworkers that I had, you know, I had one coworker who actually wrote me a, uh, who for Christmas that year at the end of the challenge, got me a book and it was called like how to make money as a writer. I actually think I have it here on the bookshelf behind me still. And she inscribed it on the inside and she was like, go ahead, be happy. And then I had another coworker who I went into her office, you know, to, to let her know I was considering this change. And she like closed the door very seriously. And she was like, Jen, run as fast as you can. She's like, run. Uh, She's like, I am an attorney with 15 years experience and my kids are on Medicare. Like run. <laughs> so oh my God. I was like, yeah, not tell me twice. <laughs> so you, you, it's been a success. By the way, I was at that same Huntsville conference. I was a little sketch. Cause I'm like, why am I going to Huntsville, Alabama? And it was <laughs> awesome for those people who are listening to you, please leave your information also, for those of you who are curious about the business that she runs, we're going to continue this conversation on my brand building lab podcast where, where we only talk about online entrepreneurship. So Jen, take it away. So you can find me at Jen on a jet Also on all the socials, TikTok, Twitter, uh, Facebook, Instagram at Jen on a jet plane. And on Amazon, my books are under Jen Ruiz.